This is Guns and Butter. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, the opening session in Toronto of Phase 2 of the International Citizens' Inquiry into 9-11, held on May 26, 2004. Today's program begins with an address and endorsement from actor-activist Ed Asner in Los Angeles, followed by media critic and Canadian broadcaster Barry Zwicker's critique of the media, Where Are We and Where Are We Going?, and ending with Ken Fernandez, Foreign Affairs Advisor to the Canadian Action Party, 9-11 and Canada, a case study in takeover. Actor and activist, Ed Asner. Hello to all of you in Toronto on your holy mission. I wish I was with you, but the duties here compel me to be here. But I envy you being in Toronto because some of my best work has been done in Toronto, and I'm so proud of it. And I love the city. And I love the mission that you all are on. Within that mission, I just hope you all achieve unity. Because one of the first and most effective means of destroying protest, of destroying a pursuit for an independent inquiry, would be disunity. To divide and conquer. It's an age-old theme, and it has always worked. Could it all be accident? Four planes destroying four different buildings. Why was building seven pulled down? Why was the steel quickly cut up from those holocausts and shipped to foreign mills? What happened to the black boxes and all the information that they should contain? Were they all destroyed by the fires? If if the black boxes were destroyed, how could a simple little passport, I believe it was Muhammad Atta's, was discovered at the site of the crash? What damning evidence it is to uh, indict Osama bin Laden and his gang. Uh, One of my main points that I would like to stress is that with all of the gaps and loopholes and inefficiency and miscreancy, and possibly criminality that was executed and committed during the tragedy of the 911 Holocaust. Uh, I feel very few of them have been efficiently and sufficiently closed, that our nation is still enormously vulnerable to further such attacks that the ability to work together, as we are striving to do today in this gathering in Toronto, has certainly not been evidenced. And it also makes me wonder that with all of the porousness that exists in this country, despite the abrogation of civil liberties, despite the application of the home security defenses, despite the, uh, the Patriot Act, that with all of those gaps and, and abilities to penetrate America, why nothing further has taken place? Because I know that the uh, opportunities exist. Which then directs me to saying, why just this one? Why hasn't it been followed up? And if the answer is there's no need to, then we wonder, what's wrong with Osama? 
why is he let down on his job? And then that leads me to wonder, was it Osama? We all think the deepest recesses of our mind, I gather, could there have been great culpability and criminality within the framework of the United States? And if so, an independent inquiry would certainly do a hell of a job in picking at the scab that that represents. Your spirit, your energy, is the only thing going that will help achieve this. Hopefully it will infect, affect the media, and that this will not pass, this will not die with whatever resolutions the official inquiry comes up with. It's in your hands. Unity is the key. And applicability of that unity as the spearhead will hopefully provide more answers than we will ever get officially. I thank you for your efforts, your time, your money. I regret not being with you. But you can do so much to preserve the shreds of American democracy and idealism that are still left in this world. You can pick us up out of the ashes. Thank you. You've been listening to Ed Asner. Next, media critic and Canadian broadcaster, Barry Zwicker. Where are we and where are we going? The question is, where are we now and where are we going? And let me start with the we being our species, Uh, but not forgetting other life on Earth. And later on in my remarks, the we will be 9-11 skeptics. But let me start with the largest canvas I can grasp. We are the universe. The universe is the ultimate reality, as ecologian Thomas Berry puts it, the only text without context. And speaking of the universe, let me ask hands up here, how many saw or heard of the latest data that were gathered by the Hubble telescope? How many uh, recall reading or hearing about that? So I'm not seeing a hand. And uh, that means that you have been robbed, as it were, of some fascinating and important, even awesome information. Let me share a few quotes from a story that was in the March 14th Toronto Sunday Star. I would like to hold it up, but I lost it. However, I copied down the relevant passages. First of all, the the story by Terence Dickinson began on Tuesday, and that would have been the Tuesday before March 14th. Astronomers at the Space Telescope Science Institute unveiled the deepest portrait of the visible universe ever achieved by humankind. Called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, that's H-U-D-F, the exposure reveals the most remote galaxies yet seen roughly 13 billion light years away. The H-U-D-F field covers a patch of sky about the size of a pinhead at arm's length. This field, this pinhead held at arm's length, contains an estimated 10,000 galaxies. Each galaxy contains approximately 100 billion stars. 
and the whole sky contains 12.7 million times more area than the HUDF. In my opinion, that should have been front page news. But staying with amazing numbers, this news was given perhaps one one hundred thousandths of the coverage that Janet Jackson's breast flash got. And in that coverage, the main thing exposed was the value system of the mainstream media, to which I will return. Now, awesome as it may be, you ask, what does this new Hubble knowledge have to do with 9-11 and this inquiry? Well, a great deal. NASA, much of its value system borrowed from or imposed by the current rulers of the USA, plans to pull the plug on the Hubble space program, which costs obviously a tiny fraction of the US military budget or even any fraction of the US military budget. In other words, a human endeavor which expands our knowledge of our ultimate reality is considered an expendable frill by those who control the most power and resources on this little planet. So where is the human species now? We are, as Professor Michel Chosodovsky of the University of Ottawa usually says at the start of his talks, and we'll hear him two days from now, we are at the most dangerous point in human history. We are in a multiple crisis. It is above all ecological. You cannot have a healthy human economy, however structured, based on a sick earth economy. The economic crisis is additionally one of extreme inequitability, as we all know, and we are in a related social crisis. There is also a communications crisis. The public nervous system, that's the mass media, is sending false signals. It is not, however, a spiritual crisis, perhaps the opposite, because crisis forces deep reassessment for individuals, for organizations, and for planets. The human species could find its soul in restoring its home. Or we may all die sooner than we should, or both. Another way of describing where we, the people, are is to say we are collectively brainwashed semi-automatons being force-marched toward extinction by rulers who are tunnel vision bullies and moral zeros. Their latest greatest hit was 9-11. So the rulers ordered their apparatchiks to mount some encores, the latest being the Madrid train bombings, quickly dubbed Europe's 9-11. A telltale fingerprint was the alleged finding of a Koran in a van soon after. Well, come on. And an alleged tape linked to Al-Qaeda. Well, you know, linked to Al-Qaeda should be all one word now. It's just, it should be in dictionaries. Linked to Al-Qaeda, all one word, no spaces. The purpose of 9-11 and the encore 9-11 type events is to keep the public malleable through fear. A fearful public will countenance a reduction of its liberties in return for promises of greater security. More encores are expected, and I hope this will be subject to considerable discussion at this inquiry. Question, how often can they play this Koran in a van card before pattern recognition becomes so widespread among citizens on the planet as to become a serious political liability for the rulers who engage in these black ops? 9-11 actually was, in my opinion, a sloppily complicated drama that well reflects the diseased minds that concocted it. They can get that complicated because their resources are virtually unlimited and their moral constraints nil. 
They are diabolical technicians getting off on their power and perversity and propensity to please their masters. But if the 9-11 planners have been high-fiving their success, they're engaging in hubris, taking credit where it is not due. Those who conspired to concoct this toxic trick and inflict it did not succeed because they created a seamless magic trick. They succeeded only because of the total virtual complicity of the mainstream media, our mental jailers. It is from the mainstream media that most people get most of their information on most topics most of the time. So those who control the output of the mainstream media control the brainstem of collective consciousness. And when those charged with being skeptical inquirers, that is journalists, are neither skeptical nor inquire, the only phrase for that is complicity, deep complicity. And when investigative journalists especially fail to investigate the obvious, as someone said at a meeting I was at the other day, something that's hidden in plain view, or else the elephant in the living room, when investigative journalists fail to investigate the obvious, it is deep complicity. And when investigative journalists only investigate that which distracts the public from the obvious, it's even deeper complicity. Because some investigative journalism is about minor peccadilloes and uh, how much do they matter compared to the subject of our inquiry. The mainstream media, and I speak as one who has earned his living for the past 33 years as a media critic, the mainstream media perform as spear carriers for the emperor through a combination of de facto censorship, mass distraction, and platforming of ideologically loaded deceptions. All blend into the illusory landscape of the total synthetic environment which is their penultimate product. Their ultimate product is atomized, lobotomized masses existing in their consumer-decorated assigned pigeonholes, in fact, all of us to one extent or another. But there is a second, seldom examined, and I plead totally guilty to this myself, there's a seldom examined, extra uncomfortable reverse side of the coin of systematized corporate media malfeasance, and that is a terribly widespread tendency among the populace to want to be lied to, to want comfortable truths, to want the world to be simple, to want to believe that we can trust our leaders always. Denial, in other words, would exist even if the mainstream media did not. We must confront that in ourselves and in others, even as we rightly place the greater onus upon those who claim to inform us. There's another answer to the question, where are we now and where are we going? I think we're on the threshold of hope because such an edifice of illusion embedded in and promotive of an earth-destroying economy is one which cannot be sustained. Something has to give and give soon. The depletion of resources is proceeding exponentially. The buildup of wastes is proceeding exponentially. The brazenness of the deceptions manufactured to mobilize public opinion behind the agenda of the neocons is reaching its zenith. Another outrage is, as I said, widely predicted to occur between now and November. But something is stirring, I think, and I think there's a lot of evidence for this, among the masses and even among New York Times columnists, the masses designated to sleepwalk toward oblivion, and something is stirring even among some of the prison guards. Those are the New York Times columnists like Paul Krugman and, and uh, Rich, what's his first name, Frank. Uh, even among a few of the illusioneers, so where are we in the 9-11 skeptics movement? Our job is to know the landscape as well as we can, to grasp 
the largest picture that we can, to plan, as Michael Rupert says, a roadmap from where we are to a better place. Our job is to nourish realistic hope that we can and will, as 9-11 skeptics, play a pivotal role in helping the old death system to itself die the death it seems to unconsciously seek. Our job is to prepare for the chaos to come and to help lay the groundwork for the more honest and sane world that will be built upon the rubble and the courage of the present. So as 9-11 skeptics, we are called by history to be our best and most effective selves, whatever role we play. We are charged with doing our utmost to save our planetary home. And to paraphrase a poet who performed at a benefit in San Francisco to raise money for the phase one of the international inquiry, our great-grandchildren should not let us sleep at night. So that's where we as 9-11 skeptics are now. We are more awake than we ever have been. We have much more waking up to do, and especially we owe it to our fellow citizens to help them rub the sleep out of their eyes. Thank you. You've been listening to Barry's Wicker. This is Guns and Butter. Next, from Phase 2 of the International Citizens' Inquiry into 9-11, Foreign Affairs Advisor to the Canadian Action Party, Ken Fernandez. 9-11 and Canada, a case study and takeover. The theme of the presentation is 9-11 and Canada, a case study in takeover. I would like to give a little overview of the U.S. government's strategic global objectives that have been roundly enunciated uh, many, many times over, so I do not need to bore you with where the sources are because they've been reiterated here and in many other places, including mainstream press. One of the key objectives, as we have seen, is a control over energy. We not only see that with respect to 911, we saw it also in the attempts to unseat President Chavez in Venezuela a couple of years ago. Uh, we've seen that in uh, the uh, ongoing civil carnage that's being wrought upon Colombia as we speak. Uh, we're seeing that in Nigeria. We saw that in um, Yugoslavia, and I'll touch on those areas a little later. The other aspect that was very interesting to note was that the arms spending that took place in the aftermath of 9-1-1 appears to have staved off, at least uh, temporarily, a stock market collapse. And then there was the sowing of fear among the masses. Concomitant with that was the clamping down of civil liberties. Uh, we saw the constant mention of bin Laden and the fear that bin Laden and his terrorists were doing such and such thing. And then there was the anthrax scare. Then there was the power blackout. There was code red, code orange. There was duct tape scare where duct tape ran out in many parts of the U.S. because Tom Ridge decided to frighten the public with uh, imminent attacks of anthrax and God knows what else. We've seen the Patriot Act where the government then becomes all-seeing. We've seen uh, other countries accept de facto U.S. control. Indonesia, which was already somewhat under that uh, yoke. Uh, India, uh, many Middle Eastern countries that uh, were then induced to have U.S. advisors uh, go in and help them out. So Canada was no different. The strategic objective of hemming in Russia to preempt a, a sort of resurgence of a modified USSR also to preempt China from becoming um, 
expansionist or at least from being able to threaten the United States' hegemony in any major way. The advance of the drug trade uh, in the aftermath of the uh, relentless bombing campaign of Afghanistan, there has been a resurgence in the poppy trade in that country and therefore in the opium and heroin trades. And lastly, but by no means the least, one of the prime strategic objectives I would submit to you of the US policy planning was the absorption of Canada. Because Canada is a rich treasure trove of energy supplies, water, gold, steel, oil, etc., 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 all of which have been highly coveted by uh, the coterie that has been ruling the United States for quite a long time. And indeed, Canada's historical importance, strategic importance, should not be underestimated. I mean, from the outset of the United States, it was uh, the manifest destiny put forward by the American founding fathers to establish hegemony over the entire hemisphere, and in particular, British North America, now known as Canada. Of course, the uh, project for the new American century serves to underscore that, though it doesn't mention Canada specifically. But if we go into the historical record from the time that Brian Mulroney took office, or a little bit before that, if we go back to 1981, you will see an attempt to secure the oil uh, reserves of Canada uh, by way of an intense propaganda campaign against Trudeau's national energy policy, which would have given Canada control over its own energy and oil supplies uh, by design and would have been the precursor to a national industrial policy which to this day Canada lacks. Big oil, in particular Exxon Corporation via its affiliate ESSO, which provided generous financing to the Alberta Premier Peter Lougheed, encouraged Lougheed to uh, play the card of Western alienation. So the focus shifted from ownership of our own oil reserves to these evil people in Toronto and Montreal who dominate federal parliament, dominate cabinets in, in Trudeau's government, that are making decisions without consulting we, the poor people in the West, whose oil it is. And then there was the bumper sticker campaign, let those Eastern bastards freeze, and so on, that was all financed by big oil. So that was the backdrop. And then at the same time, you saw maneuvers by big business interests to put forward Mulroney. It's interesting to note that Mulroney, as conservative leader and later prime minister, prior to that, Mulroney had served as, a, uh, as the president of Iron Ore Corporation, which was a subsidiary of Hannah Mining. Hannah Mining played a leading role in bringing about the coup d'etat in Brazil in 1964, which, uh, by virtue of which a very violent dictatorship was in, installed, a military government, uh, disappearance, torture, kidnappings, etc., etc., were quite routine and widespread. But the concern in that instance was steel and how much was going to be paid for steel and, and would Brazil have control over its steel? Well, the same thing with Canada. And because Mulroney successfully shielded Bechtel Corporation some years before from exposure during a commission of inquiry into unusual events that took place in Quebec, he was drawn to the attention of Hannah Mining. So they realized then that he was quite compliant and willing to uh, abide by their uh, whims and fancies, and therefore they, they played leading roles in supporting him. At the same time, as Mulroney was being brought forward, uh, and as the energy policy was being implemented, 
the Quebec separatism hit its fevered pitch. And uh, therefore, the, the, that push to try and play the divide and rule card. And it, it's interesting to note that uh, according to David Orchard in his book, uh, The Fight for Canada, uh, Alan McKechnie and Trudeau were actually threatened by uh, United States officials who said to him, well, if you want to go ahead with the national industrial policy, we'll simply destabilize your country via Quebec and Ontario. And so it's interesting to note the timing. But crucial, critical to all that was the role of the media. Uh, the Canadian media has been faithfully reporting uh, a certain slant. And in the 70s, when uh, Vernon Walters was director of plans for the CIA, according to the book by Marcy McDonald, Yankee Doodle Dandy, he wrote a memo to George Bush Sr., then CIA director, in which he said, we must take over the media of a targeted nation. And so you had the unusual instances of like the Montreal Star, where a prolonged strike of uh, its printers shut it down. The Montreal Star was routinely exposed CIA activities around the globe. Uh, it was shut down, and we have now the Montreal Gazette, which, which is not much better than the National Post. The, the push for the American party line is very, very consistent. In the, as a general rule, there are some notable exceptions, the Toronto Star, the Fifth Estate, and so on. But as a general rule, uh, we don't hear about torture in Iraq. We hear about abuses of Iraqi prisoners. No investigation has been made as to the fact that the US Army runs torture schools at the School of the Americas, now known as Western Hemispheric Institute for Security Cooperation. There is no mention of uh, torture being taught at Fort Bragg in North Carolina either. Simply put, this is presented in exactly the way Washington wishes it to be presented, an isolated incident made by quote-unquote rogue elements. The notion of rogue state, routinely touted by the Canadian media, uh, without really discussing what constitutes rogue and why they are rogue states, but they are rogue states because Washington says they are. But that is not uh, brought forward into the public discourse or into the public record. The fact that there is no possible link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, because one was fanatically opposed to the fundamentalism espoused by the other. That was not brought forward, in fact, shielded. The point of Al-Qaeda and, and Saddam Hussein being linked was, uh, was, in fact, advanced by people such as Rex Murphy, who was advocating that George Bush was well within his rights to attack Iraq if he sensed a threat. The positioning of the Canadian public via the media to agree with the need for controls on our civil liberties, with the need for our government to go in lockstep with Washington, uh, was such that at this point, the media, along together with our government, has not made any distinction between American security interests and Canadian security interests. In point of fact, the government of Canada today is quite content with the notion that the entire globe is one vast series of US uh, zones of US uh, interest. And I can say this from personal experience because I attended a conference at which Janet Bax spoke. Janet Bax is the Canadian government's director for emergency planning. She was formerly an associate or aide of Sheila Copps. And Janet Bax presented a complete map of the world with different regions colored differently and each region representing a zone of US interest. And she was presenting this map to us as though it were the most natural thing on, in, in the world that the entire planet be one vast series of zones of US interests. 
And this is an official from the government of Canada who could not possibly have been speaking in an independent capacity. But what of the political parties? What do we have since uh, 1984 and indeed uh, to the present? Uh, we, of course, had Brian Mulroney, as we saw, had brought about free trade, though he told the public that he would do otherwise. And uh, from that point onward, Richard Allen, who had served Ronald Reagan as national security advisor, his program for Canada was uh, largely implemented. He wrote a memo to Reagan in which he said, we must secure Canada's oil supplies in response to the instability in the Middle East, and we can only do it by way of free trade. And we must be able then to persuade the Canadian public that free trade is an initiative that came from them and not from us. Evidently, he was largely successful. They have secured lucrative oil supplies. Some of the richest oil sands in the world, Dome Petroleum, was sold to Amoco at, at fire sale prices. And lo and behold, after Mulroney ceased serving in office, he was put onto the board of Amoco, uh, among the other corporations on whose boards he sits. But Jean Chrétien told the public of Canada that he would not ratify NAFTA, which was signed by the Conservative government in 92, but not ratified. He informed the public of this country that he would not ratify NAFTA if we did not get definitions on unfair subsidies and dumping. Well, we got neither, but he went after his election and ratified NAFTA. Subsequently, more Canadian companies have been taken over by under Jean Chrétien's regime. There have been more orders in council than under Mulroney's time. That is to say, rule by decree. The parliamentary process, the democratic process, has been short-circuited in favor of a quasi-presidential rule by the prime minister, sanctioned by the governor general. They have been very happy to implement all the security measures in lockstep with the US Patriot Act. But perhaps more importantly, they have advanced the cause of control by US corporations over our strategic industries. The railways now, Canada, Canadian National Railway is 75% owned by US industries. It was subs the takeover was subsidized to the tune of two and a half billion dollars whilst Paul Martin was our finance minister. And of course the railways determine the trade routes. So now the trade is more access, uh, the, the axis of trade is more north-south focused than it is east-west. The east-west links are largely being dismantled if they haven't already. The government of Canada voted at the UN against a resolution that would have had water as a human right. Because there are big corporations in the United States that see fit to take over our water. And in fact, the government of Canada is currently being sued to the tune of 10 billion US dollars for refusal on, of bulk water exports, which the United States claims violates the free trade agreement. And you know what? They're probably right. It is probably a, a violation of the free trade agreement. But at no time did the media really publicize these matters. They simply went on as though, yes, indeed, Jean Chrétien and, and Paul Martin were, were uh, governing the country and decisions were made, but there was no explanation as to what underlied those decisions. There was no explanation as to why Chrétien agreed to, the, to uh, the Canadian versions of the Patriot Acts. Why Chrétien agreed to give the tax information on all Canadians over to the INS in the United States. That did not enter the, the public discourse, at least not as far as the press was concerned. 
So it would seem then that Vernon Walters' dictum of the need to take over the media of a targeted nation was put to good effect in this country. But what if the Reform Party, then known as the Alliance, then known as, now known as the Conservative Party of Canada, what of that party? What of it? The media did not tell us, unlike Murray Dobbin, who did tell us in his book, Preston Manning and the Reform Party, that the Reform Party enjoyed a close rapport with the Republican international outreach, that Preston Manning did his university studies at an outfit owned and operated by TRW Corporation, the 16th largest arms manufacturer in the world, maker of Bomark missiles, maker of Polaris submarines, he did his university training there. His thesis, if one can call it such, had to do with the creation of a vast right-wing political party in Canada. Media never told us that. Media never told us that he went on a tour of duty in Vietnam at the height of the Vietnam War, when the only people who went there were either journalists, they were soldiers, they were medical personnel, or they were spies. And at no time has Manning ever claimed to be a journalist. At no time was he known to have been enlisted in the armed forces. And at no time was he uh, medical personnel. The conclusions, uh, I don't need to draw connect the dots for you. It is largely speculative on my part, I might add. <laughs> um, the fact that Chrétien and the Chrétien government was advancing the cause of the use of the US dollar as currency for Canada from the time they took office in 93 was ignored by the media. And I say ignored because I obtained a documentary proof of that. David Anderson was the keynote speaker of the first of the series of conferences that was held in Montreal on November 3rd and 4th, 1994. I got the document over to CBC News, both national and local Montreal, and uh, no one called me back. And in fact, on one occasion, I got very rude treatment with CBC Montreal with a fellow named Wagshaw. Uh, why did the media shield that from the public? It is very, very materially important to our nation that our government was having secret talks and secret conferences aimed at getting us to use the US dollar as currency without our knowledge. And it will become an inevitability as our key resources are being sold off at fire sale prices to foreign to American interests. It will become inevitable. We will not have the means to back a currency. That fact has also not been brought forward by, by the media. What of the NDP? At the time of the free trade election of 1988, the first two weeks of the campaign was really focused on free trade. That is to say, the Liberal Party of Canada and the NDP really did concentrate on free trade. Lo and behold, shortly thereafter, NDP leader Ed Broadbent at the time saw fit to start attacking John Turner personally. So the discourse shifted from the NDP on the matter of free trade and became focused on the person of John Turner as being uh, the Bobsy twin of Brian Mulroney. And it was interesting to note that Ed Broadbent's political consulting was provided to him by a Washington-based firm known as Finger Hut Madison. And it is also even more interesting to note that after the election, Ed Broadbent ended up with a $100,000 a year job as head of the Center for Human Rights, a center which appears to have been created largely to put him as the head of it. Appears to have been. Then comes the phenomenon of the Bloc Québécois. At the time of the 1988 election, the government of K 
Canada, Brian Mulroney, was really uh, at odds with the public. The public as a, as a whole, including the public in Quebec, was very virulently opposed to free trade. But then comes the role of divide and rule. So Mr. Bouchard, who, who appeared to have split in a rather virulent fashion from Mulroney, started saying that, you know, Meech Lake was a failure. And the, the timing was interesting. The Meech Lake failure was in 1987. There was considerable hype and emotion stirred up in Quebec by the Quebec media. And it was virulent. I know I'm from there. I can tell you. There were radio talk show hosts routinely denouncing des maudits anglais. The hysteria was palpable. People really felt that they were betrayed by the close and fall of Meech Lake. But the accord would indeed have balkanized the country to the point where this country would have been ungovernable. Trudeau's critique of the accord was very well founded in law, but his critique was not addressed. The person of Trudeau was attacked, the separatist hysteria was whipped up, and in the cacophony of that whip up, the issue of free trade was obscured in Quebec. And if you look at the breakdown of seats that Brian Mulroney uh, got in the 1988 election, you will note that it was largely on the strength of Quebec that he won the election. Therefore, in nine provinces out of 10, the campaign focused on free trade. In one province, it focused on, on a constitutional matter that was really of no importance at all, given the, the fact that free trade largely eroded any rights that any province may have. So much for the Bloc Québécois. You're listening to Ken Fernandez from Phase 2 of the International Citizens' Inquiry into 9-11 held in Toronto. 9-11 and Canada, a case study in takeover. This is Guns and Butter. We also saw, however, a plethora of these think tanks and movements that sprang up from apparently from nowhere. The National Citizens' Coalition. The media tells us, we're interviewing so-and-so from the National Citizens' Coalition. What they don't tell us is that it is neither national nor a citizens' coalition. They don't tell us that the big banks are among the biggest financiers to that so-called national citizens' coalition. We were treated to any number of studies by the Fraser Institute. Who pays for these studies? Does the media just get these studies free of charge because the Fraser Institute feels like bestowing largesse upon the media? Does the government of Canada get them free? Who pays for them? Who is the Fraser Institute? What's behind it? Media never tells us these things. And so with that backdrop, we have the government's reaction to 911. We have an enactment of laws appearing to be US inspired. Bill C-35, Bill C-36, now Bill C-7, which provides among other things that the government can, that, any, that a number of cabinet ministers can declare martial law sectorally without having to go to parliament that they can order the detention without trial, without having to go before a judge and obtain warrants and even present probable cause. And we see it in, in also the, the fact that Canada participated in the invasion of Afghanistan. No sooner had the dust settled in New York than the government decided to send our troops to Afghanistan. And there was bombing of, by way of cluster bombs, which are totally illegal in international law. It's not clear whether our government engaged in that. But their use was widely known under the umbrella of NATO. Certainly depleted uranium is being used and has been used in Afghanistan. Chemical weaponry has been used. And you know what? There were 
reports from the British press about outbreaks of Ebola, which have never been known to occur in Afghanistan, possibly biological warfare, but that possibility was never raised in the media here. So we see in Afghanistan an, a compliance with U.S. interests and demands. In Iraq, we saw the same thing, notwithstanding Prime Minister Kretien's grand eloquence that we were not going to participate in Iraq. Well, you know what? We were there. We still are there, though not on the ground. We're helping to direct the bombs at hospitals. We send ships that serve as communication centers and nerve centers. We allowed American planes to fuel in Newfoundland and PEI. Yes, it is a disgrace because he lied to us. He told us, Canada will not participate in the invasion of Iraq. And those hypocrites on the other side, they know that we are, we are supporting international law. But that wasn't true. It was a total fabrication. <laughs> Canadian companies are active in Colombia and are benefiting from various forms of aid that are linked intimately to the U.S. murderous war on that country that is going on right now, on the people of that country. We are occupying Haiti at the behest of the United States under false pretenses that have never been substantiated. The same is true of Yugoslavia. We used cluster bombs. We used depleted uranium. We used bacteriological implements of war, all of which are illegal. Canadian forces did that. It violates the Geneva Conventions and it violates the Canadian Criminal Code. But the government of Canada saw fit to do that. And they also saw fit to use this discourse that, you know, somehow we're at war with Islam. But we were not told that this Islam with which we're supposed to be at war was used conveniently in Bosnia to set the stage for the total Balkanization of the Balkan country. Uh, to the point where the Bosnian finance minister cannot, by virtue of the Dayton Accords, be a Bosnian citizen, nor can the director of Bosnia's national bank be a Bosnian citizen. He must be appointed by the NATO commanders. We have a government that has recently, at least in Afghanistan and as far as I know in Iraq, placed our troops under U.S. command. How far does it go? To what degree is that placing of US under U.S. command go? Because uh, we note that the School of the Americas, which was known to teach torture, which is known to teach torture, has been renamed Western Hemispheric Institute for Security Cooperation. And we hear the government of Canada state, it is very important that we in the West collaborate and cooperate for national and international security. Paul Martin has told us this. How far does that security cooperation go? Will Canadian forces be trained at Western Hemispheric Institute of Security Cooperation? Will Canadians start to disappear? Some have. Will they be tortured? These are serious questions that we have to ask. And regrettably, the media has not asked. There has been much talk of the possibility of either a bioterror attack on this country or a small-scale nuclear attack on this country. And we hear of this time and again. I would like to make one last observation, and that is this bioterror attack must, by definition, be prepared for by our government, insofar as uh, there was a slight mention made pursuant to the, the releasing of the Martin budget that Martin has earmarked some $250 million for a massive forcible vaccination campaign 
that would be foisted on all residents of Canada in the event of a bioterror attack. The report aired by CBC TV, I should say announced by, because it was announced almost as an aside, stated further that one official per province has been designated to carry out this program. Now, if we hold that 911 was itself orchestrated by the highest echelons of a certain government, and we hear that Tommy Franks in his interview with Cigar Aficionado said if there's any other attack along the lines of 911, there will be martial law. And we are aware of the fact that the, the legal instruments by which martial law can be brought into effect need not go before parliament or indeed the public. Then I would submit to you that we have to ask very, very serious questions of this government. Uh, clearly then, if, if there is to be a terror attack a small-scale nuclear one, then where did it emanate from is, it should be uppermost in our minds. On that note, I will conclude. Thank you. Thank you, uh, and uh, thank you for your presentation this afternoon. I try to be an optimist most of the time. You're making it difficult for me. I would like to um, ask you a question, perhaps, about the future. How do you see Canada going into the future maintaining an independent foreign policy and having an effect for what we might define as the good as we progress? Canada's independent foreign policy uh, is largely mythical, regrettably, at this stage because a country that has no control over its own economy can barely have any control over its foreign policy. Foreign policy is an extension of internal policy. And if the internal policy of a country is geared towards satiating another country's greed, if such a thing is possible, then it becomes impossible to have a foreign policy. We see that in, in, in Iraq. We see it in Afghanistan. We see it in Haiti. We saw it in Yugoslavia. We saw it even with the invasion of Panama. Totally illegal acts. Where was the condemnation of the uh, attempted coup d'etat in Venezuela by Canada? We didn't see it. Many opposition parties, Canadian Action Party took umbrage, NDP to my knowledge, Green Party, human rights groups, they, they, all, they all said that. They expressed the point of view that I think is held by the Canadian public, but the government of Canada saw fit to do otherwise. If I might have a very quick second question. The purpose of this inquiry is to ask uh, what is the truth about the events of 9-11? Who knew what, when, why, where, and how? Do you have any information that you could bring to us that would tie the Canadian government or Canada into pre-knowledge uh, of the events of 9-11? Uh, there are th three things that one must bear in mind. One. Canada is a NATO country. Canada is a NORAD country. And uh, those two things alone mean that Canada, the government of Canada must have been aware of what was going to take shape. Canada is also an energy producing nation. But beyond that, it strains the imagination to think that the government of Canada was unaware of books such as the Grand Chessboard, which enunciated uh, the uh, push for 911 in many respects, which, which set it out. Control of Central Asia, control the gas and oil fields, but use 
uh, a Pearl Harbor type event as the catalyst, as was said by the Project for the New American Century, which is in fact on the web. It's, it's hard for me to believe that the government of Canada, for all the resources of espionage that it possesses, for the security intelligence service that we have, for the various plethora of myriad security agencies, the, the communication security establishment, which literally has the power to tap every single phone conversation going on in the country at the same time, uh, and is intimately connected to the NSA and, and the British uh, GCHQ, whatever they call it, uh, was not uh, aware of this. It strains the imagination. The best we could say for the government of Canada's response is that it was highly irresponsible. That is the best, I think, that could be said. Well, I would like us to look at the evidence you've given and understand that Canada chose not to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, yes, we are members of all these groups, uh, G8, NATO, NORAD, uh, uh, OECD, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Do you honestly expect us, who, as far as I know, had nothing to do with the design of the events on 9-11, expect us to go against the world's greatest military power in order to stop what obviously has to be stopped by American citizens? I'm not quite sure I understand you when you say what obviously has to be stopped. I, I'm not quite sure I understand that. If you could elaborate on that a little further, I'll be able to give you a, a better answer. Could well, you... we don't vote for Bush. No, of course we not. We can't vote for Bush. Okay. And obviously, all these organizations we belong to are run by Americans. They uh, pretend to, uh, you know, the expansion of NATO and the rearming of all those countries. Um, we, true, we are a member, and the excuse we give is, oh, we're at the table so we can influence. We have not been able to influence uh, in the way that the Canadian public would be interested in going. So uh, can we not uh, hand this problem back to the Americans? Well, I think that's what would have been wise. I think uh, a position taken by Canada would have been one of great, to use George Bush's father's expression, prudence. I think we should have looked at the facts, looked at the evidence before jumping headlong into that. And all the party leaders in this country, Alexa McDonough, head of the NDP, the leader of the Bloc Québécois, the leader of the Alliance, as it was known then, and certainly Jean Chrétien, all went to so-called ground zero. There were massive outpourings of sympathy. Minister Eleanor Kaplan publicly stated that she somehow felt responsible for all of North America at that point. And I, I was at a loss because the voters of Abilene, Texas had nothing to do with her holding office in Ottawa nor did the American taxpayer in Albany, New York. But at least not to our knowledge, we hope that to be the case. Yes, it, it's something that I think we should have looked at askance and said, well, we need to see proper evidence. We need to look at the record. Colin Powell told the world that he would present us categorical evidence of Al-Qaeda and so on having orchestrated attack. Uh, that gave the government of Canada an out. We could have said, well, Mr. Powell, with all due respect, you did not present us with this evidence. We cannot embark on this massive expenditure. Uh, we cannot support or uh, f finance or subsidize your push for UNOCAL in Central Asia. We just cannot, absent proof, please show us the evidence and then we'll think about it, we'll put it to our parliament. That would have been the much more correct approach, I think. Our civil liberties are as precious to us as our strategic resources in Canada. Uh, you spoke about the zones of USA interest, 
and it seems to be a, an effort there to, to take control of our uh, strategic resources. It seems to be that we have been co-opted in the USA's fictional war on terrorism. And so in Canada, we are cooperating with the USA by ourselves passing bills like uh, C-36 and C-7 and so forth, which are eroding our civil liberties. Recently, 19 Pakistanis were arrested and with no due process. What proactive steps can we take to ensure that our civil liberties are not eroded or not further eroded? Uh, I think one of the things we can do now that it's election time is to dog and pursue the liberal uh, people, people, members of the Liberal Party who are seeking to be elected or re-elected and ask them the question in public when they show up at ridings, when they go to the public and shake hands and kiss babies and take those wonderful photo ops that are scripted by their Madison Avenue bosses, ask them the questions that are tough and difficult for them to answer that take them away from the cue cards. By what right did you pass that bill? Do you know what the consequences are? Do you understand the implication? Ask them the question because I can guarantee you in most cases they don't. I've had the discussion with some MPs in Montreal and they had no idea. They did not know the content of the legislation that they put forward. Or should I say that was foisted on them by a cabinet uh, which they are too happy to serve without question. Thank you. In terms of NORAD, the commander of NORAD on September 11 was General Ralph Eberhardt, who was in charge making sure apparently that 9-11 was allowed to succeed with the war games they were doing that day and failure to scramble and so forth. Eberhardt, after September 11, was promoted to run the new Northern Command, which is the U.S. military control over Canada and mm. Mexico. The U.S. military is divided up into commands mm. geographically all over the world, Southern Command to dominate Latin America, Central Command for the Middle East, and so forth. And the Northern Command, if we have martial law in the United States, it will be the Northern Command that would be in charge of it. It's the homeland defense, quote-unquote. And... I think that's one of the stronger smoking guns for what's going on. I think, thank you for the comment. I think that it's instructive to, to note that uh, in any setup where there's colonial power and a colony, uh, the colonial power will use local forces to control its aims and objectives. And I think that with the placing of our troops under their command, that's exactly what we will see. Hi, my, my name's Dan from Shadow Government Television in New York City. I just wanted to say that it may be out of fashion to say this, but there's a lot of solidarity among the ruling classes at the top. Mm -hmm. The wealthy are not just wealthy, they are a capitalist ruling class. Mm -hmm. And there is a capitalist system, there's a global capitalist system that demands super exploitation because these people aren't necessarily very good at running their businesses. They have massive resources. We have billions of people, billions of new people on the planet. There is a inherent problem in the capitalist system where they have to be pushed down to starvation levels. And that's really what we are seeing when we talk about the decline of civil liberties. These people don't have a choice. It's not that they're mean or they're rude. They need super exploitation and slavery even in the advanced countries at this point to keep this system, which is historically obsolete in power. After 9-11, Canada signed an agreement with the U.S. allowing U.S. military to come into, into Canada under uh, if we were under terrorist attack. Who is it who would determine under what circumstances we would allow the U.S. military in? I don't think 
that the decision would be made in Ottawa. It would be made to appear as though it would have come from Ottawa in the same way as free trade was made to appear as though it came from Ottawa. But in all likelihood, that decision will be made at the highest echelons of the Pentagon and the White House. And really and truly, if, if one's objective is to control other people in other nations, then it is for those nations to take stock of that fact. If we Canadians do not take stock of that fact, then we cannot blame our American neighbors. Surely the blame lies squarely on our shoulders. Squarely. been listening to Ken Fernandez, 9-11 and Canada, a case study in takeover, from phase two of the International Citizens Inquiry into 9-11, held in Toronto in May of 2004. In addition to being the foreign affairs advisor to the Canadian Action Party, Ken Fernandez is an attorney, the executive director of Horizons Political Consulting, an actor, and president of Project Reachout which sponsors children and finances orphanages, schools, and farmers' cooperatives worldwide. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave messages or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www gunsandbutter.net times that we live in G and our new world order is about to begin you know what I'm saying now the question is are you ready for the real revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what I'm saying now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life then universally we will stand Divided we will fall Because love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself For peace, give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? 